We're going to read from the Bible now from uh, the account following the death of Jesus, his burial and resurrection, from Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to read from verse 57 through to the end of chapter 28. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples, Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women went on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the soldiers and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, he will satisfy him, and we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, some of you might be able to help me. I was thinking earlier, um, who was it that sang that song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love? And I went on everyhit.com on my phone and uh, they didn't have it, so I've got the title wrong, or maybe that's just the, the first line and not the title. But someone said, what the world needs now is love. I think today, that's back in the 60s. Some of you have got no chance of remembering that. Uh, some of you probably have a great chance, and you'll tell me later. But uh, if they were writing it today, and it sounds like a kind of Burt Bacharach kind of song, but I think he might say, what the world needs now is hope. We're living in very difficult days, aren't we? James uh, Lovelock is a, a scientist. I suppose a philosopher as well. He was on the radio the other day uh, talking to John Humphreys. And he makes John Humphreys seem like a really young guy when uh, he isn't so young anymore. But uh, this James Lovelock, I think he's 90 or 91, developed the theory of Gaia. And that's saying that the world is one huge organism. And we're not individual bits in ourselves. We're just all part of a a huge organism. That's the way he sees the world. Uh, And they were talking about global warming. And John Humphreys was asking him his his thoughts about it and so on. Uh, And he said, I think we've already pulled the trigger. When we started making our civilizations, and John Humphreys was asking, what what do you mean, that there's no no way back? And he said, no, 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 there isn't. It's going to happen. This disaster will take place. And John Humphreys asked him, well, what what will that mean for the world then? What will it mean for for people, for humanity? And he said, it it means uh, seven-eighths of the world dying. That's probably about 7 billion, if there are 8 billion in the world. And he said, well, well how? How will they die? It, it, will it be through floods and so on? And he said, no, it'll be through starvation. But that's just the way it is. That, that, and the organism then will replenish itself, but human beings will go. And he hears something like that and think, gosh, we need, we need hope. If that bloke is right, that that's where things are going, then, then we really do need uh, incredible hope given to us. Part of the difficulty with that sort of conversation, though, is it's just 7 billion is not where we are, is it? And we need hope very often in a much more personal way. People saying, well, look, the world is going to end in so many decades' time and seven-eighths of the world are going to starve to death and very few people will be left. It's hard to get your mind around that and it's hard in that sense as well then to feel... uh, I haven't got my phone on silent now. There's a... There's a warning for all those. I'm going to turn it off in, in case it phones because you'll, um, you'll laugh at my ringtone. Uh, anyone remember the teardrop explodes reward? Well, it's really nice and loud. That's why I've got that as my ringtone. But anyway, that kind of the, the world is going to end in a, in, in a fireball and so on. It, it does get some people worried, but maybe for most of us, it's just too far out there. It's too big and too distant. But other things do come close and they make us think, I do need real real solid hope to help me in my life in this world. Maybe some of you have, have heard of a, a guy, maybe uh, some of you maybe, maybe have some of his uh, MP3s at home, Stephen Curtis Chapman, uh, American Christian singer. Uh, he and his wife adopted a couple of girls from China uh, and uh, they had them back with their family uh, in the States. And a couple of years ago, uh, one of them was five at the time, Maria Sue, I think her name was, she was in the yard of their house, and his, uh, an older son of his, uh, natural son, Will Franklin, uh, driving their Toyota Land Cruiser, swung into the yard, uh, and there was a terrible accident, and she was knocked over, and she was killed, dead on arrival at the hospital. 
Stephen Curtis Chapman grabbed his daughter and, and drove her off to the hospital and apparently uh, turned to his son, Will Franklin, as he was going out of the, uh, the driveway and shouted, Will Franklin, your father loves you, because he understood that the nature of what had happened in the, uh, in the yard there. But she died, and he's written an album of songs reflecting on that. And this is how one of the songs begins. He said, it was the day the world went wrong. I screamed till my voice was gone and watched through the tears as everything came crashing down. Slowly, panic turns to pain as we wake to what remains and sift through the ashes that are left behind. Maybe you can begin more easily to relate to that than to a James Lovelock nightmare scenario for the world. Not necessarily an accident in that way, but the loss of a loved one or the potential loss of a loved one or life breaking down, tears overtaking everything, and you wake and there's only ashes that are left. Maybe in terms of bereavement, maybe in terms of relationships, maybe in terms of uh, a potential career and things that you felt were established. Things come crushing down uh, and we really need hope. Where do you, though, then find hope in this world? Where can we go for something that will be truly solid and will help us to, to handle these sorts of issues? Well, Kurt Vonnegut in his, uh, can you call a book iconic? Maybe you can. Uh, a very famous novel anyway, Slaughterhouse Five. There's a section in that book where uh, he describes what some people would like to think of as, uh, as well, that's the way that things could be put right in the world. Uh, the key character is a chap called Billy Pilgrim. And uh, let me just read you a, a section from that book. Billy turned on the television. He came slightly unstuck in time and saw the late movie backwards. It was a movie about American bombers in the Second World War and the gallant men who flew them. Seen backwards by Billy, the story went like this. American planes, full of holes and wounded men and corpses, took off backwards from an airfield in England. Over France, a few German fighter planes flew at them backwards, sucked bullets and shell fragments from some of the planes and crewmen. They did the same for wrecked American planes on the ground. And those planes flew up backwards and joined the formation. The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bomb bay doors, exerted a miraculous magnetism, which shrank the fires, gathered them into cylindrical steel containers, and lifted the containers into the bellies of the planes. The containers were stored neatly in racks. The Germans below had miraculous devices of their own, which were long steel tubes. They used them to suck more fragments from the crewmen and the planes. But there were still a few wounded Americans, though, and some of the bombers were in bad repair. Over France, though, German fighters came up again, made everything and everybody as good as new. When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States of America, where factories were operating night and day, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas. It was their business to put them into the ground, to hide them cleverly, so they would never hurt anybody ever again. Someone said, the world seen backwards makes more sense, doesn't it? 
but you can't take things backwards. Stephen Curtis Chapman could not say to Will Franklin, his son, let's just put the car in reverse and let's see little Maria lifted up and and there's no blood, there's no broken bones, there's no loss of life. We can't turn things backwards. We can't look back and say, the time when I said that and it caused such pain, can we just reverse things and the words will come back into my mouth and I'll heal you through taking them back in. It just can't happen if the world was like that well. Well, you'd never actually move forward either, would you? But it's, it, it's a picture, but it's a picture of hopelessness because you know that can't happen. We can't turn things around in that way. The question is, where does hope begin and end? Where can we find this afternoon real, genuine hope? Well, let's turn Matthew 27 and 28 and perhaps beginning in, in 28. Real hope is found in an empty tomb. An empty tomb. The question is, why is that tomb empty? Why is the tomb of Jesus empty? Well, it's not because of resuscitation. It is not the case that Jesus didn't really reach the point of death and that somehow he was resuscitated. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they don't all always keep the same things uh, together. Some have certain stories that others haven't got. In all four of them, to do with the, the death of Jesus, all four record for us his body taken down from the cross given to this man, Joseph of Arimathea, and Jesus' body placed in a tomb. Why do they tell us that? Why are all four of them keen that we should know that's what happened to Jesus? For this reason, if they had thought, and they were there, and they loved him, and they cared for him, if they had thought he can be revived, he can be resuscitated, they wouldn't have put him in a tomb. They'd have taken him to someone's home. They'd have called a doctor. They would have done whatever they could. They would have got as many bandages as they could have laid their hands on. And and whatever it is that you would put in wounds in those days to try and help him. It wasn't resuscitation. Jesus really died. Hope begins with an empty tomb that is not empty because of resuscitation. You see, if it's resuscitation, there is no hope, is there? Because you know, well, death's going to catch up with him one day. I remember sitting with my father the night that he died, sat with him uh, through the night, just me and dad there. I would have given anything, anything for dad to have lived another day or another two days. He wasn't conscious. His breathing was very labored uh, and there was no real engagement with him. But to to have kept him there alive, even in that state, for another day, a half a day, would have been worth everything, but he would still have died. Even if we could have got him awake, maybe they could have done something for him, and there was no hope for that to happen, but even if they could, he still would have died. That, 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 wouldn't, that, that couldn't have been the hope, if, if only they can do something to revive or to resuscitate. It doesn't begin with that. And this text, and all four Gospels, they emphasize to us, he really died. One of the letters of Paul in the New Testament, he speaks about the fact that Christ died for our sins and was buried, that he was raised on the third day and he was seen. Why does he add that little phrase, and was buried? Why why should we want to know what happened to Jesus after he died? Surely he could just say he died according to the scriptures and he was raised. 
according to the scriptures. And then was seen. He adds that little phrase and was buried so that we really understand that he really did die. It's not resuscitation, nor is it, in the second place, a case of reincarnation. The women are told that Jesus is not there, that he's alive. They hurry away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they run to tell the disciples. You can imagine yourself being there, can't you? You've gone there expecting that you're going to anoint his body, this man that you have trusted in, that you've had such a, a relationship with, that he has cared for you, provided for you. You've believed that he is God who has come to rescue you, and yet they've taken his life from him. They've gone there to do whatever they can in his death for him. And then the tomb is empty. An angel tells them he's alive, he's not here. They're going back to tell the disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. That's not reincarnation. You know, some people believe in reincarnation. You know, when you die, you come back as something else or someone else. But in that theory of reincarnation, there's no continuing relationship. You're not known by the people you knew before. Either you come back as something non-human, or if you come back as a human, you, you come back as someone else with no recollection of life in this world, with no ongoing relationships. Jesus, this is not reincarnation. They, they know him. That's so important in, under, in, in understanding that reincarnation isn't a real hope. Real hope means the continuation of relationships. And that's what we're seeing here. Paul Weller has uh, released, maybe some of you remember him, lead singer in, in the jam and then the style council and since then been on, on his own. Uh, the mod father, they call him, because he was kind of like reviving uh, mod music through the jam and so on. Uh, he's just released a, another album, uh, Wake Up the Nation. Uh, his father, his own father, has died recently. And he says this about his dad, and I think refers to him in the album in some way, uh, but says, my dad's spirit is still with me. I haven't really worked out what happens when we die. I think we go into the ether, into the earth, into the air, into people's minds. But the whole notion of heaven and hell is man-made and goes on to uh, dismiss that. Some believe in reincarnation. He seems to be saying, well, I think it's assimilation that you just disappear into the air and you disappear into people's minds. That really can't be our hope, can it? That isn't what's happening here. Here is a, a definite person, Jesus. They can clasp his feet. They can hold on to him. They know him. It's not resuscitation because he really died. It's not reincarnation. It's not assimilation into the universe. What is it? What you're seeing here is what the Bible describes as resurrection. And the key thing about resurrection that gives us hope is this. It is a going through and out of the other side, the experience of death. And Jesus alone has done that. Jesus alone has overcome death. That's the, the, the great need of hope that we have. You think of James Lovelock's nightmare scenario, seven-eighths of the world dying. But actually, eight-eighths of the world will eventually die. Every one of us in this room, there'll be a funeral service for us. The people that we're seeing here today, maybe some of them will be there for that service. We need hope that says there is a way through this and out the other side that retains the integrity of our person. 
that enables in some shape or form relationships that are valuable to continue. That doesn't just mean we get assimilated into the air, but that we remain a, a, as who we are, but, but in a way that can no longer be hurt by death or pain or evil. Jesus did that. Real hope begins in an empty tomb that's empty because of resurrection. Because death has been faced and death has been overcome and only Jesus could do that. None of us can take death on and overcome it. It's too big an enemy for us, too strong for us. But Jesus, God's own son, the Bible records that he did that. I've got power, he says, to lay down my life and I've got power to take it up again. That power doesn't belong to us, but he has that. That's where hope begins. But where does hope end? Where does it go to? What's the ultimate in view? It's a fascinating account, this beginning of chapter 28, and then through this chapter, there's a, there's a few hints here. It's not, a, it's not the whole picture being given to us, but there's enough hints for, for us to be able to say that's, that's something to, to look forward to and to hold on to. After the Sabbath, a day of rest, At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. The Bible tells us God made the world. And when he makes the world, he then rests and then things carry on from there. The end of that creation week, the Bible pictures creation. It's a a Sabbath rest. Here, after the Sabbath, there's a new week beginning. It's a week of new creation. Jesus' resurrection is the first unveiling of a new creation of what God is doing. Maybe you remember at Christmas time, the uh, uh, Doctor Who special there, where uh, David Tennant begins regenerating into, is it Matt Smith? No? The new Doctor, is it Matt Smith? Okay, there's a few, there's a few Dockies uh, in here. No, is that what they're called, Doctor Who fans? Dockies, I don't know. I know Trekkies are Star Trek fans. There must be a name for Doctor Who fans. But anyway, you had a small glimpse David Tennant is regenerating into Matt Smith. Doctor number 10, regenerating into Doctor number 11. There was just a tiny glimpse, wasn't there? You had to wait for last night and the full unveiling now of the new Doctor Who. Here is a small glimpse of a new world that God is bringing in. And the small glimpse is Jesus having come out from that tomb. And the women here grasping his uh, feet and and worshipping him. It's the beginning of a new creation. Where will it end up? It's going to end up in a whole new world. Jesus tells his disciples at the end of this chapter, he wants them to go throughout the whole world, telling people about him. What a great privilege that is. It's what the world needs to hear, a message of hope, that death can be overcome, that all our guilt, all our shame, all our brokenness, it can be handled and has been done by Jesus. He sends them throughout the whole world. Everyone can know about this. God is not saying keep it a secret just between you and me, just, uh, just a few people. There's a few people who meet the mark and I want them to know. He's saying, no, the doors, the doors are open. The barriers are taken down. Everybody is to know about this. And Jesus says to them, I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. It is going to come to an end. Maybe not the way James Lovelock has predicted, but there will be an end to this present age to the world system as it is now jesus said so and he's bringing in at that time the fullness of the new creation that began when he came forth from the tomb 
The new thing that God is doing will be complete then. It'll be a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness. No pain, no mourning, no crying, no sorrow, no separation, no sin, no injustice, no tears. And all because Jesus died and rose again. Hope ends gloriously. Begins with an empty tomb, but it ends with a world made right. And a world made new. A world that can be our home as we look to the Jesus who came from that tomb in resurrection life. That's what the Bible says to us. That we can believe just simply and and, and straightforwardly trust ourselves to him. Not looking at him and saying, well, if you did it, I guess I can do it. I'll, I'll, I'll go through death and out the other side. We haven't got that power. We haven't got that authority. We need him to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And to take us by the hand and bring us out the other side because he has overcome. And he says he shares his resurrection and his life with anyone and everyone who believes in him. Hope begins with an empty tomb. It ends in a glorious renewed world. But there's also a sense in which we can say that that hope ends in this chapter. Hope ends for some in this chapter, there is set before us a great prospect of a new heaven and new earth. Steve Curtis Chapman, that song that I wrote, wrote, wrote from, read from earlier, uh, he says, I, I can hear it in the distance. It's not too far away. It's the music and the laughter of a wedding and a feast. I can almost feel the hand of God reaching for my face to wipe the tears away and say, it's time to make everything new. Make it all new. This is our hope. This is the promise that it would take our breath away to see the beauty that's been made out of the ashes. But in this chapter, for some, a black line is written under hope straight away or a line is struck through it straight away. Hope ends. It's dealt the death blow by cynical rejection of the possibility of resurrection. There are guards at this tomb. You see them there at the end of chapter 27 where the people, uh, the, the rulers go to Pilate and they say, look, this deceiver, he said when he was alive he was going to rise again. And, you know, if his disciples go and steal the body, well, you know, if, if the, the last deception is going to be worse than the first and so on. Put a guard on it. Well, what happens with these guards? This violent earthquake in chapter 28. The angel of the Lord comes down, rolls the stone away from the tomb. The guards, verse 4, were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. Well, what becomes of them? What becomes of the report that they give? Verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city, reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. What would they have said? There was an earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down. He's rolled the stone away. We've looked inside. The body has gone. This man has been raised. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Because the governor's question would have been, well, why were you asleep? We'll keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. A report of resurrection, 
a report that death has been faced and overcome. Not because of resuscitation, not reincarnation or assimilation into the universe, but a real bodily resurrection. Death has been handled. The guards go back and report amazing things to the chief priests and the rulers. And they bribe the guards to keep quiet. And they say, we'll clear it with with the governor if this gets back to him. The possibility for them of real hope is staring them in the face and they kill it. Cynical rejection. They shut it out through fear. All sorts of vested interests are being challenged. Their status in that society. Their place in, in how people think, people's opinions of them. Those things ultimately meant more to them than the possibility that they would have to humble themselves and say there is something about this man that more than we ever realized and we opposed him and in fact we crucified him but actually the truth is and we see it in that empty tomb he was who he claimed to be that for them would be the road of hope but it was too costly because they they had a place people looked up to them they had certain amount of wealth because of that they had a position in the society And that was why they rejected the possibility for themselves of real hope. You think, they must have been out of their minds, mustn't they? But don't we do it in all sorts of ways? There are certain things I've got, I want to hold on to them. Even though something better is being offered to me. I realize there's a costliness in going with the something better. It means giving up other things. It means adopting a humble position. Maybe giving up some of the dreams that I was chasing. Maybe getting real about how I view myself. and About how I've lived my life and the people I've hurt. And the God I've rejected and pushed to the margins. That's the way to kill hope. But hope doesn't have to be killed. The disciples, that they couldn't put it all together all at once. Some of the disciples weren't looking forward to seeing Jesus. Peter, who denied him three times. Imagine how it must have been for him. Maybe at first he kept his distance a little bit. Jesus squared it all with him. They had a talk about that. Thomas saying, I can't believe this has happened. They all doubted, but Thomas is the one who's who's spoken of the most in terms of that. I'll only believe if I can put my fingers into into his hands and my hand into his side where the spear went and so on. Huge challenges for them too. But they held on to the real hope. Beauty will rise from the ashes. This man, the God-man, has come out of the tomb. Death's been faced and overcome. And we can share in that. But we can only share in it if we're ready to say, I don't care what people think of me. And those things that I was chasing, that I was saying would really make my life worthwhile, well, I might still go with them, but I'm going to have to revise my opinion of them. They won't make me truly satisfied. Even if I achieve that job or that position, even if I manage to bring that relationship to pass, it is not going to bring ultimate satisfaction and hope. I've got to set that on one side. I've got to change how I see me. I've got to change how I see God. That's a hard thing to swallow. But that's where hope really resides. That's where hope is really found. And we understand and grasp and cling to the feet of this Jesus. He is the one, the only one, who can bring us genuine 
and lasting and eternal hope.